Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of vice. It's Friday, December 14th. I'm Sophie Kazis. Today we're talking about how illegal use of psychedelics is on the rise and what that says about the times we're living in. It's well documented that there's been a rise in clinical testing of psychedelics for depression and PTSD. The media also likes to talk about how some Silicon Valley execs like to microdose LSD to keep on top of their game. But outside of the corporate types and the clinical trials, there seems to be a psychedelic renaissance happening on the streets. So if the Snapchat generation is learning how to tune in, turn on, and drop out, the real question is, why now? We've got Vice's global drugs editor, Max Daly, talking to writer Mike Power to try to figure this out. You wrote an article about how recreational use of psychedelics has gone up in the past decade. What does the data tell us and how much are people tripping these days, Mike? Well, the, the data is really clear and there's an awful lot of people tripping on a lot of different substances nowadays. But just to take LSD in the US for 18 to 25 year olds, that number has quadrupled in just the space of a few years. We're now looking at 1.31 million 18 to 25 year olds using LSD in 2017, according to official government figures, which are always lower than reality. Um, in the UK, we've seen LSD use jump to levels that we've not actually seen since around the year 2000. And um, in, t- in terms of ketamine, that's um, that's actually tripled in the last three years. So there's really definite uh, trends going on. Um, drug trends often reflect something larger about the times we're living in. How is the use of psychedelics now different from when they were last extremely popular in the 60s and 70s? Well, I think there are some strong similarities and some distinct differences. Um, the first relates to user bases. The second one relates to substances and then the means of acquisition and the, the question of purpose. So starting with the user base, in the 60s, it was kind of more bohemian types of people doing it, students, intellectuals, people with time on their hands. But everyone I spoke to worked at least two jobs. So in relation to the substances being used, we've got, you know, acid and mushrooms are the enduring classics. But now we have different analogues of LSD, such as ALAD, 1P LSD, and then other newer drugs such as 2CB and mushroom-type drugs such as 4-ACO-DMT. And ketamine, too, I count as a psychedelic, which obviously wasn't very popular in the 60s. So there are more drugs being used, and then that's not even touching onto things like DMT and ayahuasca, which used to be, you know, pretty much impossible to buy, but you can, you know, you can do click and collect on eBay and, and buy the ingredients for that now. So the means of acquisition has also changed markedly. I think for me, one of the most interesting ones is the question of purpose. So in the 60s, there was this kind of real belief that these drugs could change the world, kind of a, a new age of human consciousness. But if you trace certain cultural practices back, say vegetarianism, environmentalism, communal living, 
all roads lead to acid in some convoluted way. And I think the difference then was was that it was kind of countercultural. And now it's a combination of escapism, which I think, to be honest, is a hugely therapeutic aim, um, and something like kind of self-medication, plus experimentation and straight nihilism. Whereas in the 60s, if we compare it to the kind of belief systems of the people who made the LSD, uh, Nick Sand, the world's most famous acid chef, he used to literally pray as he made the acid. He used to say, may this benefit all of humanity. May this lead to a greater understanding and awakening for everyone that takes it. And what I'm seeing now is not exactly that, but there is certainly, you know, there are elements of that, but it does seem to be more casual use nowadays in the people that I spoke to. Would you say that people are taking psychedelics also just for fun, just to have a good time, just to kind of get out of it in a particularly interesting way, rather than having any particularly important or significant reasons for actually taking it? Yeah, I think the psychedelic drugs, I think all drugs really are losing their kind of countercultural significance. I think they're becoming ubiquitous. I think they're becoming something which is pretty quotidian and everyday for, for young people as they're using it. I think there's always with these drugs an inbuilt kind of magical escapism in there. But yeah, I, I do think that there is just a, a strong strand of people just using these drugs to get high, to, to, to get messed up and have fun. And, you know, I'm not going to judge that. I think that's actually a fairly valid response to the slightly crazy times that we live in. In recent years, the media has shed light on the use of psychedelics by doctors in clinical trials to treat things like PTSD and depression. Uh, it's been all over the news. How does the coverage relate to the increase in people using these drugs on the street? Has there been any kind of influence there? I think definitely. I think that we've seen a normalisation of psychedelic drug use and we've seen a wider discourse around these drugs than before. Previously, the only time that psychedelics were in the news was when, I don't know, someone had jumped out of a building or when there was some scare story being propagated by the government. Whereas now, if you hear that, you know, the tech elite are microdosing mushrooms and seeing their productivity soar, or if you see that MDMA is curing, like literally curing people with PTSD, or, you know, that ASAP Rocky had a huge orgy on acid, then I think people are going to think about them a little differently. Now, you explain that these truth-seeking drugs are becoming popular in part because of mass alienation and isolation, that people feel detached from community and even reality. Can you talk more about this? Yeah, I think, you know, we're at a point in kind of late stage digital capitalism where everything we do is on screen. Everything we do, you know, all our life we spend on screen, you know, at work, at home, on the bus, in bed, at the dinner table, on the toilet, we're on our screens and it's ridiculous. And I think that sort of social media has made us slaves to our dopamine receptors, which light up as if we just want to bet or had sex or a line of coke every time we get a notification. And we've been trained and enslaved by advertising platforms to squander our lives online. And psychedelic drugs can kind of snap you out of that. They can they can break you free from those kind of conditioning models. They can make you realise that, you know, we're all the same in some way. And we need to just ask ourselves, are we going to spend our life waiting for a ping on a screen? I mean, psychedelic drugs, they destroy some of the boundaries between you and other people. And, you know, by using them wisely and with intent, with a known dose of a known substance, with good people in a safe place, there's a great likelihood that you will enjoy yourself and you're going to learn something about yourself and the world and make solid connections, not just digital ones, with the people that you're with. And that's a really unpopular message among people who dislike drugs and who want them banned. But, you know, anyone that actually has ever taken these drugs, I think, has a responsibility to not maintain the lies that politicians have perpetuated for decades. If you lie about the fact that these drugs can be fun, then users will not listen when you tell them about the risks, which nowadays can involve anything from insanity, either onto death or like pissing yourself laughing. It can be all of those dangers can come to you. So, yeah, I think that 
modern life modern life is fairly fairly rubbish for many people and these drugs offer uh, a way out a way to escape and a way to have fun and a way to just have a brief interlude of sanity in this kind of slightly slightly crazy world we're living in yeah i mean there's a seems to be a kind of couple of ironic or contradictory things at play here obviously there's the big corporations funding uh research into uh psychedelic drug use uh when as as you said you know that they were counterculture drugs originally and then the other kind of slightly ironic thing is that as you say you know people are using these drugs to escape from the internet but the growing popularity of these drugs and availability uh in particular of these drugs is linked to the internet so in in what ways is the internet intertwined with current day psychedelic culture well, obviously, we have kind of forums where people can discuss psychedelic drug use and we have, you know, different platforms where people can, can obtain these drugs. But really, the net or rather the dark web saved LSD from obscurity. It, it brought users, suppliers and chemists together like like never before. And it's such a small drug, you know, a, a gram of LSD can dose 10,000 people, you know, and that can be posted in any business envelope anywhere in the world. And I, I could, you know, I could get enough acid to get every person in this neighborhood tripping in 24 hours and that would have been impossible for anyone but like really connected kind of hippie mafia people even you know 15 years ago and the dark web in in its initial iteration at Silk Road 1 it was a really hugely psychedelic community this has been widely overlooked I actually have a pet theory that Ross Ulbricht who he first of all he grew mushrooms to sell online that was his first kind of act of the Silk Road and I also know that he took a mushroom analogue called 4ACODMT and he decided to create Silk Road I believe he actually decided to create Silk Road as a result of these of these psychedelic experiences because it's exactly the kind of leap of logic that occurs when you rewire your brain in this kind of psychedelic way you know why don't we use this new technology bitcoin to buy and sell drugs anonymously and so you know that's that, that's the kind of background to it and i think there was a huge kind of evangelism and idealism in those early days of the dark web and many of the people that i know that sell large amounts of lsd on the dark web nowadays you know they're really evangelical these people give away free acid they give away free lsd to anybody that applies to them in, in in their kind of online markets because they believe in the power of lsd to change minds and hearts for the better um your story also explained that psychedelics are becoming popular among an increasingly diverse group of people so who's choosing psychedelics today would you say I think absolutely everyone, really. I mean, the people that I included in my article, um, they worked in shops. Um, I also spoke to plumbers, electricians. There were accountants in my piece, fashion designers, retail workers, artists, and, you know, every gender and sexuality and a, and a good solid racial mix. So it seems to be a really wide cross-section of ages as well. I mean, we, we focus on younger people in this piece, but I had... I had dozens of older people. I, you know, I probably spoke to fifty people for this piece, and all of them had an interesting backstory. There was one one sort of group I really wanted to get, which was um, young Welsh kids and like young Mancunian kids up from Manchester and kids from Yorkshire, and they go out and collect the magic mushrooms that grow in huge abundance in that part of the country. But time and space didn't permit that. But yeah, everyone's everyone's tripping. You told a fascinating story about an Israeli soldier named Alex. Will you share his story? Yeah, I think when we were developing this piece, you and I, we we were discussing how we were going to get hold of case studies and interesting people. And we were both laughing, I think, at the at the concept that, you know, all roads lead to side trance when you're talking about acid in the modern era. And in this case, it did. And it was through sort of side trance connections that we managed to get hold of an Israeli soldier named Alex. And he told me that he was, you know, he he, he felt that he he shed some of his hate by using LSD. And his quote was wonderful. He said that one of his most memorable trips was in the city of Modin near the West Bank at an open-air Cytrans party. And this is a guy who was flying, you know, a, a drone pilot. He was a drone pilot for the Israeli army. 
And he, he said that at this party, he was on acid and he went and sat on a hill. He said, I was looking at this fence and I saw how the terrain looks very different on one side to the other. And I asked myself, what is this fence for? What does it mean? Does it really change something or is it just a symbol for what? And he said that a lot of people in Israel are really against peacemaking. And they look at this fence and they say it's us and them. But they've never been to the other side of the fence, said Alex. And they're saying that this territory belongs to us and it's part of us. And I was looking at it and I was in a very psychedelic state, he says. And I was asking myself the questions and he said he shifted his perspective. And I asked him, did the acid help him see the brutality and the ugliness of that war? Because, you know, like many people, I see the Israeli occupation and blockade of Gaza as legal collective punishments. And I said, did you perceive the ugliness and the brutality of that war? He said, yes, it was the very opposite of what I was hoping to see. A lot of times on acid, I felt this oneness with everything he said. But here I was looking at this artificial separation. His conclusion was what interested me most. He said that he, he kind of reconciled the psychedelic experience with his continued role as an Israeli army reservist by doing his job in the most moral and good way and not from a place of hate, by you know talking to civilians with respect and arguing for a negotiated peace, which I thought was a really interesting um, really interesting conclusion to draw from those experiences, you know, to, to, to be, as he was, under rocket fire in Bathsheba and to be still actually able to have that insight into other people's experience. I thought it was a... It was a classic psychedelic experience, in my opinion. It was wonderful. It was an excellent, excellent conversation we had. So maybe if, you, if you're a war general and you want your soldiers to be fighting, don't give them LSD. Well, I think there's always been this very sort of idealistic perspective that LSD would, you know, end war and you know, change politics. I, I don't really subscribe to that viewpoint, but I do think that it, it, it kind of, it can, it can offer people a different view. I mean, one of the headlines for the piece I was originally thinking was turn on, tune in, stay sane. And that kind of, that to me sums up the attitude of a lot of people in this in this article. They're faced with this unacceptably odd reality, that, with this excuse for reality that we actually all have to suffer currently. And one of the ways that they actually negotiate that reality is by occasionally subverting it through psychedelic drugs and stepping outside of it and just stepping back and looking at things from a different perspective. And that's what psychedelic drugs offer people. They offer a chance to do that in the same way that, that cannabis does and in the way that alcohol and cocaine don't. You know, this offers people a, a different way of looking at things. I mean, biochemically, it, you know, it stimulates the serotonin receptors, so it actually makes you feel closer to other people and more, um, you know, less divided and uh, more more united in, in some certain kind of human way. So, you know, that, that, that to me, that's, that's, a positive, that's a positive outcome and it's a positive aspiration and goal for these young people. So... You know, you've, you've explained in your article that everyday folk, you know, shopkeepers to soldiers to students are, are taking psychedelics, but so too are the super wealthy and they're planning on making lots of money out of it. Can you talk a bit more about this? Yeah, certainly. In the US, there are a number of uh, clinical trials and kind of FDA-sponsored studies for the use of psilocybin in treatment-resistant depression. Now, it works wonderfully. It's been shown to work uh, very well in very many different case studies. But there's a, you know, there's a, there's a move to kind of commercialize this, and this has got the backing of people like Peter Thiel, who's you know the, the kind of billionaire founder of PayPal and the Exxon of eBay and stuff like this, and you know. Obviously, capital looks for return on investments, and these are growth markets in the same way that cannabis has been. And so there are some strange some strange bedfellows in the psychedelic community. We have Robert Mercer, 
the guy that backed Trump. Um, he, he, he's a funder of Trump and he also funded the Cambridge Analytica company and he also funded, you know, Breitbart News, all, all this kind of stuff. So this guy's a, he's a, he's a right wing activist ultimately and funder and he's just thrown one million pounds at MAPS, which is the uh, multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. He's given them a million pounds to get MDMA legalization in medical contexts over the line. So, you know, I'm not going to criticise or blame those people for doing that, but it's a, it's a consequence of, of the capitalist world that we live in. People will want to make money, and these are new products and new product areas that can help, you know, millions of people on the earth, millions of, millions of people with depression or millions of people with, with a need for, you know, a need for, for, for psychotherapeutic interventions. Talking about the um, the rich people and the super wealthy a bit more, I know that they're people paying a thousand dollars to be taken on a trip by a trip guide who supplies them with magic mushrooms or whatever. And obviously, we've been talking about microdosing um, in Silicon Valley. Do you think there is this almost kind of two tier? psychedelic scene you know one rule for the for the rich um who as long as you've got money you're going to stay safe from the law and another rule for the average people on the street who can easily get in put in jail for quite a long time for for being caught with quite small amounts of these drugs there's not that much change in 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 the legal status of these drugs for recreational use but if you're rich if you know if you're rich and wealthy and connected then you've always been protected from the consequences of your actions that's just that's just basic. Uh, that, that's just basic privilege. But certainly, we have this. Um, you know, we we have a, a cultural acceptance now of this among, as we've discussed, the kind of tech elite and Silicon Valley kind of microdoses and people like this. They are not being arrested for their use. They're having Sunday Times articles and New Yorker articles written about them. Whereas, you know, buskers in various towns in the US are being arrested for for, for possession of 20, 20 types of LSD and people are being arrested for picking mushrooms. So it's always one law for the rich and another for the rest of us. But um, yeah, I think in psychedelics, it's particularly galling because these are drugs that, you know, it, I think in some way we see them as democratic. We see them as a leveler. And then to actually have a two-tier punishment system for the wealthy and for the, for the less wealthy, it, it does seem quite galling really yeah you wrote that within 20 years you believe mdma magic mushrooms and lsd will be available legally in the us and eu and beyond and and that many millions more people will use these drugs but if the rise in the recreational use of psychedelics is essentially related to the need to escape modern society then what does the future hold would you say I think that's that's a really enormous question and probably impossible to answer and I'd probably answer it differently depending on how recently I'd watched the news, to be honest, Max. Um, I think that the most interesting thing that's happening right now is that people are able to make their own minds up about psychedelic drugs and they're available to everyone that wants them, certainly more so than at any point previously. And that's thanks to the dark nets and, and cryptocurrency. But speaking more broadly, I think that humans will always want to connect with each other. It's instinctive. We, you know, we hunted in packs because we couldn't take down animals alone. And we farmed in groups because labor is too hard individually. And life is simply harder alone as a human. We're social animals. And while modern life tends to, you know, increase the distance between us, sitting in a field with your friends on a dose of mushrooms as the sun comes up with some great music playing, it's, it's you know, it's self-medication. And it's the same kind of self-medication that my generation did in the 1980s when we rejected the cult of Thatcherism and the cult of the individual and the abeyance to business as the only thing worth believing in. And instead, we took ecstasy and we danced in fields and parks and warehouses and we created a music culture which has endured. And that, to me, is the same kind of thing that's happening now. I wish there was some kind of some kind of coalescing scene around the psychedelic, uh, around the, the, the psychedelic renaissance or the street psychedelic renaissance. I don't see that happening just yet, but I do think that there's, 
something will come from this. Something will come from the, the, the greater availability of psychedelics and something will come from the greater use of psychedelics. I really hope it's positive. It's difficult to say, but I, yeah, I really do hope it's a positive, uh, a positive future. Make sure to grab a hard copy of Vice magazine, or you can read the full article at vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And tune in again on Monday for another Vice Guide to Right Now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.